In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. On our way to getting our PhD in marine biology, our Money Tales guest, Janine Furpo, realized how capped her earnings potential would be. Pivoting into computer sciences, she earned enough to fund her true passion of helping others rise up. She was part of the wave in the role technology could play in helping solve poverty. Once a sufferer of bag lady syndrome, Janine now has a secure understanding of the role money plays in her life. Hi, this is Sandy. Janine is a seasoned values-aligned investor and social innovator with a long history of working at the intersection of women and their money. From the early years of Apple Computer to senior positions with Hewlett-Packard, the World Bank, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Janine has always found herself making an impact. Janine walks her talk. Today, she is a lead investor in Next Wave Impact, an impact fund designed to help more women become angel investors. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Janine Furpo. Janine Furpo, welcome to Money Tales. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Would you start this conversation with us by providing a overview of your life and share with us a couple pivotal moments that get you to who you are today? I grew up in the Bay Area. My parents were both children of the Depression. And so issues about money and financial instability was a big part of my early life. But that changed when I was in my early teen years because my mom started getting involved in real estate. And so our fortunes started changing when my mom did that. And that was, I think, incredibly influential on me. And we can talk more about that later. And then I went off to college. I had planned to become initially a doctor. Then I changed my mind. I was going to be a marine biologist. And then I changed my mind again. And in the late 70s, before there were really personal computers, I fell into the computer industry. And that was fascinating. And I did that for about 14 years. And then I quit a job and went on a solo backpacking trip through sub-Saharan Africa for like four or five months in early 1995. And that trip was really important because I had never seen poverty like I saw in Africa. And also, I really realized I wanted to spend more time in the kinds of countries I was visiting, but I wanted to spend time there as more than a traveler. Just as the internet was taking off, I rejiggered my entire career reinvented myself and started looking at the role tech could play in solving poverty in developing countries. And that led me on a 20-year career 
that I ended a couple of years ago that was amazing. And it had a lot to do with women and their money, actually. Not that I had foreseen that, but that's what it ended up doing. And as a result of that, and the fact that I lived in the Bay Area, I ended up being very involved in conversations here around impact investing. And about 10 years ago, I decided, you know what? I'm going to figure out how to do that with all of my own money. So I got on a journey of how to invest all my assets, starting with my cash, in ways that aligned with my values and create a better world. So that's a very much in a nutshell who I am and how I got to where I am today. That's an excellent summary. If we can go back in time, this seems like this pivotal moment as a child of this financial instability and your mom starts in this career around real estate. What are the conversations that's happening at that time within your family? So the conversation, so my earliest memories of money are my parents fighting about it. My mom being really stressed out all the time about money and whether we would have enough whether we would have enough clothes, whether we'd have enough food. I remember my mom buying powdered milk because we couldn't afford to buy whole milk. She would drive around to places where she could, she cut coupons in places where she could save five cents. She would drive to another location to buy the same product for, to save five cents. I mean, that was my upbringing and her constant stress about money At some point, she decided she couldn't just depend on my dad for our livelihood. And so she went to work as a secretary, which she was quite skilled at. But that wasn't enough for her. My mom was ambitious, I've come to realize. And so she got herself a real estate license because my dad was in real estate. And she figured if he can do that, so can I. And then she totally outperformed him. And when I was in middle school, my mom started buying foreclosed properties. She would just go to the courthouse steps, buy these properties, and sometimes sight unseen. And my sisters and I were her crew. So during the summers of my teen years, I spent ripping out carpets, redoing floors, painting houses inside and out, cleaning gunk, fixing and repairing. I mean, that's what I did as my mom's crew. And she was totally transparent about all of this with us. And Basically, I learned how to be in real estate from my mom, and I still own rental properties today. Was your dad part of these activities? No, my mom basically did it. And here's the other thing. My mom also learned how to invest in the stock market. So back in the 80s, my mom started deciding that she was going to learn that. And so she taught herself how to invest in the stock market. My dad just let her do it. And then she taught us. So a lot of what I know about money today, it's because of my mom. I give her a ton of credit. In fact, I just published a book a couple of weeks ago about investing your money and doing so in alignment with your values. And I dedicate it to her because I know that I would not be in the situation that I'm in today without her education and and teaching. Janine, how did she teach you about investing and money? She taught us by example in a lot of ways. It was more osmosis than it was we sat down and she gave us specific lessons. She would, as I mentioned earlier, take us out to these houses. She would tell us how she bought them. She would take us to the courthouse steps. You know, she would explain when something went bad. My mom was very emotive. She was the kind of person that thinks through talking. And so she talked. And in that talking, we learned. 
And she did the same with the stock market. I mean, we knew when the market was up because my mom was happy. We knew when the market was down (laughs) because my mom was complaining. And she told us the strategy that she was using to make her investment decisions. Janine, I think it's so wonderful that you learned so much from your mom. I'm curious, though, what was it like for you as a child in the years before your mom entered the real estate business? What messages were you taking away from seeing your parents argue about money? I think that money was an absolute essential to life, that you couldn't live without it, that it was one of the most valued things you could possibly have. It had a very high role in the hierarchy in my mom's life and therefore in mine as well as a young person. And when your family's economic situation changed by your mom going into the real estate market? It still stayed that way, you know, for my mom. So one of the things that I think is really important for me and for my mom, I grew up with bag lady syndrome without a doubt. So I grew up believing that I was going to have to be 100% self-reliant in terms of my financial life. And I actually wanted that because I saw too many women when I was young who got married, didn't really have jobs. And then then when they were in their 40s, the husbands left them for like the secretary. And that's a little tongue in cheek, but not totally. And I was committed to never become one of those women. I decided I am not going to be dependent on some man for my financial health, my emotional health, my friends, everything. I'm going to create my own life and my own money. But even with that goal, And even though I was successful, even starting early in my career, and I always lived under my means, and I always saved, and I always had up to a year of runway, should something go wrong, I still believed I was going to be in my 80s living under a bridge eating cat food. Because money had such a, could potentially have such dire consequences. Now, I've gotten over that. It took me some time, but my mother never really got over it. So even though she did reach a point of financial freedom and financial security, she still would write a letter and put a stamp on it rather than make a phone call because a phone call costs more money. And this is when, when you could get phone plans that you like paid one flat fee and you could call anywhere in the country that never quite sunk in. She still wrote letters because it's cheaper than making a phone call to the day she died. Truly. So interesting. So when you went off to college, how are you thinking about money? And how were you equating college with money? So my parents, fortunately, were able to pay for me to go to college. However, I worked too. So I got my very first paying job when I was 14 years old. I worked in a a knitting store. I taught women how to knit and crochet and do macrame at the age of 14. And I worked my entire life. I mean, my very first jobs were when I was like four or five, my mom would pay us a dime to do little jobs around the house. And as a young person, my sisters and I did all the housework, all the dishes, all the ironing, all the wash, we did it all. And we got paid a little bit of money for that. And so I've always saved. And so even when I was in college, I had part-time jobs and work to help pay for college. What were you doing? What was your job? So I 
was primarily a secretary. So interestingly enough, because that had been something that my mom had started doing when she was 18 and did through her part of her married life. When I was in high school, my mom demanded that I take typing. Now, typing isn't even a thing anymore, right? But when I was in high school, I took typing and I took shorthand. And so when I got to college, I was secretary ready, man. And so that's what I did. I became a secretary. And I did that through my college years. And you mentioned earlier that you switched majors a few times. Was money playing a role in the decisions you were making about what to study? No, fortunately not. I mean, one of the great things about my parents was they taught me that I could do anything. And I really believe that. The choices were more personal as I got closer to, so I started out wanting to be a doctor. And when I was a junior, I realized, you know, I don't think that is really what I want. After all, I just love this biology. That's the biology that I want. I graduated with a biology degree, and then I went on to graduate school in biology, and I was going to get a PhD in marine biology, and a couple of years into that, I realized, you know, this isn't really what I want to do either, and I sort of fell into the computer industry. Literally, it was a total accident in a lot of ways, and then that just became so enormous. I mean, when literally when I started, there were still no personal computers. And then we all know how that industry has grown. Were there other women? Interestingly enough, my very first job in the computer industry was in New Orleans. And I worked for a life insurance company there. And there were a lot of women in the programming department. And the reason is because at that time, we're talking like 1981. At that time, there was no such thing really as a computer degree. And so the way that they found people to be programmers was they gave everyone in the company a test. And if you could pass this test, then they taught you how to program. And a lot of women did really well on that test. And so in that place, There were a lot of programmers, but never after that. So I stayed in the computer industry. I ended up moving back to the Bay Area, got a job out here. And I stayed in the computer industry, as I said, for about 14 or 15 years. And that first job, there were a number of women. But after that, the numbers were much smaller. Janine, you seem very intentional. So how does this PhD marine biologist fall into the computer industry. Okay, so this is where I'm going to go a little woo-woo on you. So sometimes stuff just happens, and I really believe in trusting your instinct and trusting your gut. So I was in finishing the first year of my master's program. I was doing this in Florida, and I had already figured out I don't want to go on. And I didn't know what to do. So I was hanging out at the pool on campus one day. And I have a habit, I guess I'm a little like my mom, of telling anybody what's going on with me. And so I met this complete stranger. And I said, I don't know what to do with my life. This is what's happening. And he said, go into the computer industry. It's the future. It's almost like that scene from Mrs. Robinson, you know? <laughs> And I met this man for like 15 minutes and something just went off in my head and I was like, he's right. So the next day I went back to campus and I went to the computer department and I said, 
what does it take to get a minor in computer science? And they told me, and I signed up and I got a minor in computer science as a result. That is fantastic. And our one of our past podcast guests was Jill Willard, who's an Intuit, and she will love hearing your story. It was remarkable. And then and the whole ride in the tech industry, oh my gosh, in the 80s and the early 90s, I was at Apple in the 80s. It was amazing. It was an amazing ride. So tell us about money during that time period. So I ended up with a master's degree in marine biology and this minor in computer science. And I went out to get a job. Well, as a master in marine biology, I could have become a scuba diver, which I was. I was a diver at the time. And I could have used that talent and collected marine specimens for PhDs in marine biology. For that, I would get paid about $12,000 a year at the time. There was absolutely no upward mobility. And chances are that if I did that career for 10 or 15 years, I would end up with the bends, nitrogen narcosis, or other injuries to my limbs. Not a great outcome. I also started looking for a computer job, and I found one at $17,000 a year. It was my first salary. Obviously, a lot better and be upward mobility. And I had been living on virtually nothing up to that point. And so as a graduate student, so $17,000 seemed like a lot. And I was ambitious and smart around the way that I prepared myself for the next job. And so throughout my career, every couple of years, I'd take another job and I'd make more money. And so I watched my income go up. And then when I was in my late 20s, I decided, okay, I've got enough, and my mom was going to help me, and I bought my first house. So I always felt pretty solid around money because I knew how to get those jobs, and I was investing at the same time. And as I said earlier, I also was really careful to put money aside so that I had a runway in case I lost a job or in case I wasn't happy with what I was doing. And I also really loved to travel. I'd been a traveler from the very first international trip I ever took at 17. And so I would quit jobs and travel. And then I'd come back and I'd get the next job. So I always had enough money to travel. And I traveled low to the ground. So my travel was not expensive. I traveled on local conveyances in poor countries. So I always felt pretty solid around money. But I still had bag lady syndrome. And so how did that manifest at that time period? The bag lady syndrome? Mm-hmm. I think it manifested by my being very thoughtful about spending money. So I'm not a big shopper. I never have been. And I learned a long time ago that if you don't go into a store, it's really remarkable how little you want or need. It's when you go into the stores that you're like, oh, I want that. I want that. But if you don't go near them, you don't look at the catalogs, you just ignore all that stuff, you really don't want or need very much. And so I was always, there are these eight financial archetypes. I talk about them in the book and I'm a guardian. I guard my money. It's part of the way that I have dealt with my money my entire life. So I'm thoughtful about it. I'm smart about it. I don't spend it in crazy ways. I buy to last. I buy good quality. I wait till I see something I really want. And then I buy good quality and it lasts me for decades. So that taking us back into the 80s, you were making a lot of money 
a little worried about running out at some point. So you're being very careful about spending it, you know, a lot of savings and investing, but yet you'd quit your job and travel for a while, which sounds like a big risk for someone who has bag lady syndrome. It is. It's bizarre, right? So I had both of these things going on at the same time in my mind. The bag lady syndrome, I think, was more related to the long term as opposed to what's here and now. And I would make sure that I had enough money to do the traveling. And as I said, I did it close to the ground. So a lot of people think that traveling is really expensive, but I was able to travel for $1,000, $2,000 and be gone for a month. And I was completely happy traveling that way. I learned a lot that way. And I guess I'm just an adventurer at heart too. I like a lot of different kinds of adventure. And that's what I used my money on was experiences and adventure rather than stuff or cars or other things. Janine, was it one of those quit the job travel experiences that brought you to sub-Saharan Africa for the backpacking trip? Exactly. What's interesting about that trip is, so I had always wanted to take a year off and just travel for a year. And I was in the tech industry, things were moving really fast. And I thought, I can't afford to take a year off. So I was working for a startup enterprise based out of Atlanta. And I was a vice president at that company. And I decided it's time for a change now is when I'm going to go take a trip and I'm going to go for four or five months. I can't do a whole year. And I had already secured the next job. So I already knew the job that I was coming back to before I even left on the trip. The trip was supposed to be slightly shorter. And while I was in Africa, I called my new boss and said, I can't come back yet. I need more time. And to her credit, she gave it to me. She let me keep traveling. So when I left for Africa, it was in February of 1995. And I and everyone I knew was in something called the CD-ROM or multimedia industry, which was using pictures and, and it was moving beyond just the text on the computer to bringing in videos and those kinds of things. But we were doing it on CDs or big laser discs. When I came back in July-ish timeframe, there was something that had happened called the internet. The CD-ROM industry was dead. And the internet was this new thing that had happened. And I was well positioned to get really involved in the internet, but something, as I said earlier, had shifted for me in Africa and I said, I'm not gonna do that. So I consulted in that space for about a year while I was figuring out how to get work in developing countries. And then once I figured that out, I shifted my career and I never looked back. Janine, what did you shift to? What were you doing at that point? So at that point in time, what I was doing in the mid-90s was actually helping put technology centers, telecenters in Africa, putting them into schools, trying to hook kids in Africa to kids in other parts of the world or to knowledge in other parts of the world. The thought at that time really was, well, if we can just get computers into the hands of people who are disadvantaged, it will change things for them. Let's break this digital divide. That didn't really work out that well for a lot of reasons. Electricity? Yes. I mean, when you try to bring a computer into a school in parts of Africa, not only did you have to bring electricity, you had to 
put floors in. So you had to put some kind of cement over the dirt floor. You had to put windows in over the empty holes in the walls. You had to put bars up around the windows so that people wouldn't break in. You had to bring in electricity. You had to bring in power. You had to bring in internet connectivity. So you had to bring in telephone lines. You had to have security guards who walked around the building. To, I mean, the amount of effort. And then you had to have vacuum cleaners, little vacuum cleaners to vacuum the dust out of the computer on a regular basis. So we're talking about trying to bring a technology that was developed in the West into an environment that is so completely not ready for it. Then you've got a population who can't read the language in which the technology is. And the stuff that was on the computers at that time was not really meaningful to their lives. So there were a lot of reasons that it didn't work. What has proven to work over time is actually phones. So phones have really become a powerful tool for, for people in these countries now. Powerful tool for the poor. Because it connects them. Connects them in a way that the computer's harder to do. Yeah, I'll give you a super simple example of something that happened early on. So when I was first working in Africa before cell phones, I would need drivers who would help drive me around the city that I was in. So this is in Uganda I'm talking about. I was in Kampala. And the way that this would work is you would stay at one of these hotels for foreigners and there would be a bunch of guys in their beat up cars parked in the parking lot and you would go out and some guy out there would come and drive you around for the day. Well, some of the drivers were good, some of them not so good. And along the way, I found this one guy who was fantastic. And so I used him the whole time I was on this one particular trip. But then I left and there was no way for me to ever connect with him again, right? So that happened. I stopped working in Africa in Uganda for a while. I went back about five years later. Cell phones were a thing. And we're still talking the old style cell phones, the little one unit things with a little tiny screen. And I go out to find a car and lo and behold, there's the same guy that I had used like four or five years before. Now he's in a nice shiny SUV. So he helps me and I ask him, what happened? You went from this car that like the doors didn't shut, you know, and now you've got this beautiful SUV and he holds up his phone. He said, now my clients can call me and let me know when they're here. He said, I have three other cars and drivers. So that phone, just the ability to communicate, transformed this guy's life and took him from barely subsisting with his driving to having an entire business around driving. Fantastic. It's amazing. Like, can't even conceive of this. We don't even conceive of it. So that's just like a very simple story of one person early, early on in cell phones becoming available in sub-Saharan Africa. There are so many more and things are so much better now that we're talking about smartphones and everything else that's possible. So when you would come back from these trips, Janine, I have to think the culture shock when I think of the money, the poverty where you've been to the much more progress in the States. How'd you reconcile that? At some level, you never do. It's really, this is a, a question that I ask myself even to this day. I mean, I still travel to these kinds of countries and you see people begging along the side of the street. At, on the one hand, you just want to empty your pockets and give everything you have to them. 
And on the other hand, you know that you can't. And so part of the way that I reconcile that is just by trying to do everything that I can to be helpful, to invest my money in ways that I think are helping to solve some of these problems, both domestically as well as internationally, and then also using my philanthropic dollars to do this. So I think that what a lot of people don't understand is that we actually have the potential to make choices about how we invest our money. And whether we realize it or not, every single dollar we have, even the dollars we have in our savings and checking accounts are being used by somebody to do something. So they're having an impact in some way. And the question is whether that's a positive impact, a negative impact, whether it's supporting something we care about or whether it's supporting something that we're in opposition to. And we have the choice to put our money to work in the things we care about without giving up financial return. And this is a fairly recent phenomenon, but it is something that is available to us today. And that's what I do with my money. And that helps. I want to hear more about that. But before we go there, I want to question you on one thing that you mentioned earlier, which was you said that you were looking at the role that technology could play in solving poverty. And you said a lot of it had to do with women and their money. And I was hoping you could elaborate on that. So about five years into my work in international development, I was working at Hewlett Packard and I was asked, I was part of an initiative there called e-inclusion that was started by Carly Fiorina started in 2000. And she was looking at how could a big corporation like HP do well financially at the same time it was doing good in the world. And I just want to note that even though companies do that today, Carly was the first, the first, not surprising it was a woman. But anyway, so I was part of that. And I was given the challenge of figuring out what we could do in the financial services space because HP does a lot of back office financial systems. So that led me to something called microfinance, which you may be familiar with. Microfinance is giving small loans primarily to women in developing countries to help bring them out of poverty. And it had been proven to be successful. And there were about 100 million people being served by microfinance worldwide at that point. But according to a McKinsey study, 2.5 billion people needed that help. So we were not going to go from 100 million served to 2.5 billion served using philanthropy. We had to come up with ways to commercialize this. And we started looking at the question of how could technology play a role in that. And so back in like 2002, 2003, we started doing experiments around technology point of sale devices in East Africa, looking at could we extend the reach of microfinance and the efficiency of microfinance using technology? And that inquiry, although I was not involved in this experiment, one of the experiments that was carried out was carried out in Kenya by Vodacom, and they started using the mobile phone to do that. And lo and behold, they discovered that people wanted that phone to move money from one place to another. That created a business called M-Pesa, which a million people were using M-Pesa within a year of its entry in Kenya. And today, more than the entire GDP of the country flows through that system. There are more than 200 implementations of mobile money all over the world today because of those experiments that started with microfinance. 
I don't know why my life worked out this way, but I have had the amazing privilege at being at the forefront of some incredible waves of change and remember the history, remember when things were not the way they are today, remember how we got started. And there are some incredible stories out there and I've been really fortunate to be involved in some of those stories at some level. Would you define impact investing for us and tell us how that's evolved over the years since your involvement? Sure. So it's really hard to define it because actually, if you ask five people, they would give you five different definitions of impact investing. I think the intention of impact investing is to actually put your money to work in ways that create a better outcome. It's often used today in terms of private investing. So not so much related to the stock market, which is often referred to as ESG investing, which is environmental, social, and governance, but more around investing in private companies. I've sort of stopped using all of that language. And in my book and in my own talks, I talk about values-aligned investing because I think at the end of the day, this is really about us individually and collectively. And so investing is a very personal practice. It's something that each of us have different goals, different aspirations, different amounts of money, et cetera, et cetera. And each of us has different values. And so for me, this kind of investing is really about what are the things that I care about and then how can I invest to accelerate those things. And there's actually something called the sustainable development goals that were pulled together as part of United Nations activities and ratified by 193 countries of the UN. There are 17 of these goals. There are things like no poverty, gender equity, climate control, etc. And I picked five of those that guide all of my investing. And I talk about them in my book as well. These are what they are, and this is how you can use them too. So for me, I'm investing in a way that is empowering women. I choose banks that are community-based and that are giving loans to women to start small businesses or to women to buy homes. I invest in our communities. I do that in my bonds. I buy municipal bonds that are supporting education or clean water or infrastructure. And a lot of times those things are disproportionately more positive impact on women and children. In the stock market, I do not invest in anything that I think is undermining social equity or that is undermining our planet. So I've made those choices. I do private investing. And in that case, I support female-led businesses because in this country, in 2019, only 2.8% of all venture capital in this country went to female CEOs and it went down in 2020. So women need to show up and put our money to work for other women. So I do all of those things with my investing. Now, somebody else may have different values, but there are opportunities for them to invest those values as well. Janine, tell us about how your values show up in your spending. You mentioned earlier that early on in life, when you were first making money, you weren't really spending it. Have things changed? And are you as thoughtful about where you're spending your dollars today as you are about how you're investing your dollars today? 
I try to be thoughtful about that too. I drive a 2006 Prius. <laughs> so my car is super old and, you know, I bought it when hybrids were still kind of a new thing. I live in the same house that I've been in for like 20 years. And when I buy things, I think about where they're manufactured, who's making them. I buy fair trade coffee. So yes, I do think about those things for sure. And I also recognize that sometimes these things that are more environmentally sustainable, et cetera, they cost more. And so not everyone has the privilege to be able to make those choices. And I realize I do. And so I make those choices because not everybody can. Janine, tell us about writing Activate Your Money. Writing a book is a really hard thing to do. And it's sort of a day job, but I don't, I think you did a day job and wrote a book. Tell us about it and why you thought it was so important to do so. Okay. So when I was retiring, um, I knew that I didn't want to just stop work. I just knew that I was done with international development. So I had loved that career, but everything comes to an end. And I knew that it had come to an end. And so I started thinking about, well, what, what should I do next? And this is where that woo-woo thing comes up again. So I just started listening to the messages I was getting. I started paying attention and this desire to write this book emerged. And the desire emerged because I had for 10 years been trying to move my money into alignment with my values. I had financial advisors who were helping me and I didn't feel like I was where I should be. I also felt like the impact investing space had been incredibly important, but it was really targeting ultra high net worth individuals, institutional investors, foundations, etc. I was not really that when I started on the journey to invest my money this way. And I felt that the time had come that anyone should be able to invest their values, anyone, whether they are an accredited investor which means that you either make $200,000 a year as a single person, $300,000 as a couple, or you have a million dollars of net worth without your house. So only a fraction of our population can jump that hurdle. But I wanted to make sure people who could jump that hurdle could invest this way and people who couldn't jump that hurdle could invest this way. And there's no place that teaches us how to do that. And so I decided I was going to write a book to do that. And the vision always was from the get-go, and I want the book to be a foundation for women to come together in clubs because we learn best when we're together. I wanted the book directed toward women because we've been left out of this conversation and books are not really written for us and, and media is not written for us and we're not taught that we can be investors in fact, only 9% of us believe that we're better investors than men. And yet when we do invest, we outperform them. So I really wanted this book to talk to women. And I wanted them to realize that they could invest this way. And as I was going down the journey, I started learning this stuff about women not feeling confident as investors. And so the book actually emerged to be something that teaches you to be a confident investor, teaches you what all these terms are gives you the language, gives you the lingo, gives you the tools, and tells you, okay, in this asset class, these are your options in terms of values-aligned investing, and this is where you can go to find this. 
And then the other thing that I think is really important to understand about the book is I am not a financial advisor. I'm not certified. I'm just a person who's done this with my own money. And I realized the amount of research I was going to have to do to write this book was sort of overwhelming. So I started reaching out to a bunch of awesome women that I know. And at the end of the day, I had almost 150 women help me with this book. So women who were certified financial advisors wrote initial versions of chapters for me that I then rewrote so that they all had the same voice. But they helped me. They helped me make sure I was getting it right. Every chapter was reviewed by 20 to 25 women, half of whom were financial experts and half of whom were not, to help me make sure that I was getting sort of the level right and so on. So a lot of women helped me and a few men. There were some men involved. But this book could not have been created if it hadn't been for a community. It was a community project. I just was the little shepherdess who kind of made sure it kept moving along. I love that. That is very cool. I'm curious, Janine, now that the book is published and you've had a chance to talk about it and reflect on it, what did you learn most from writing the book? Wow, that's a good question. You know, I really think what I learned is something that I alluded to earlier, just how terrified women are of their money. So here's something really interesting. By 2030, we women are going to control the majority of money in this country. And yet we run away from our money. We don't want to think about it. We give control and investment power over to someone else, generally men, because 83% of financial advisors are men, something like that. Or we give it to our husbands or to a father or to a brother or an uncle, somebody, but we don't want to manage it. We don't think we can. And the thing is, men invest it the way that men invest. And we actually invest differently. We have different goals and motivations for our money. And collectively, because we control so much of this money, if enough of us started moving our money in alignment with our values and started investing in communities, which we care about, in things that support our families, in other women, in companies that are producing products and services designed for us, Rather than, oh, let's design this thing for a man and then we'll make a pink version of it and give it to the women. <laughs> Instead of that kind of thinking, they're actually starting from the get-go in developing things for us. We can actually change the economy because power goes where the money flows. And if we start making different decisions about where that money goes, then the power structures will be different. And so I believe that we can create a more equitable and sustainable economy by the choices we as women make with our money. What's one of the hardest money conversations you've ever had to have? Those would probably have been when I was a kid, but I'm going to tell you something that I think is maybe more interesting, which is the most interesting money conversation I've had. So I waited quite a long time to get married. I was almost 48 by the time I got married. And before he even proposed to me, my husband said to me, you know, if you ever get married, he said, I think you should have a prenuptial agreement because you have a lot of energy around money and you should just sort of keep that money and manage that money yourself. And this was a man who didn't have as much money as I did. Okay. 
he eventually proposed to me and we got married, but we have a prenuptial agreement and my money is my money, 100 and full on percent and his money is his money. And to this day, the amount of money that we have overall is different and he's totally cool with it. So I think that for me was like the standout around a money conversation. What was your response when he first asked you that question? I realized he was right. And I realized it would give me a lot more confidence in getting into a marriage if I wasn't tying up my financial well-being with a man. It would give me more confidence to get married. He was right. He knew something about me that I didn't really realize myself. Janine, tell us, when did you lose the bag lady syndrome and how did you do it? I lost it about five or six years ago only. And I think in part is because of my stepping into who I am now and what I am now around money and really saying, I'm going to take control of this and I'm going to start doing with my money the things that I want and the things that I think are possible. And that has really had a transformational effect on me. So I can honestly say I no longer worry about eating cat food. So glad to hear that. That makes me very happy. I have noticed in my experience that there are many women who have created their own wealth who have bag lady syndrome. And it's always interesting. I wonder if anyone has really studied why that happens. Well, I think we got so many mixed messages when we were young, right? So I'm in my 60s now. So I definitely realized I got mixed messages. I was told, as I said earlier, outwardly, you can do anything you want, you can be anything you want. But then the subliminal messages, which are much harder to figure out, it takes time. The subliminal messages were, marry someone who's smarter than you, richer than you, taller than you, et cetera, et cetera. And there were many other subliminal messages about who we were supposed to be and that we were supposed to be dependent on a spouse, that they were going to be the ones who really were going to bring in our livelihood, that women who made more money than men or who were more successful than men were not attractive, were not desirable. And I really found that to be true in my own case. A lot of the men that I was interested in earlier on I saw who they married and it was not the ambitious out there, I'm going to take the world by the horns kind of women that were, (laughs) at least that was my experience. I don't know that that was true everywhere, but it was my experience. And I think it was the experience of many of my friends of my particular age. I think it's changed over time, but women my age, I think many of us had that experience. Great thoughts and insights. Thank you for sharing them. What's one piece of money advice that you'd like to share with our listeners that hasn't come up yet in this conversation? So one of the things that I've realized is that a lot of women don't actually know what they have. They don't know what they're invested in or why they're invested in. So the very first thing to do, if you're not familiar with that, and this is true whether you have a financial advisor or not, is take a look at your portfolio and look at what's in it. What's in it in terms of, is it stocks? Is it bonds? Is it something else? How's it allocated? How much do you have in different asset classes? Why do you have those choices? And then once you've looked at that, then you can look at, okay, and what's it doing? But first, 
And I provide the tools and the ways to do all of this in the book and on the companion website. But the first thing to know is what do you have? And you'd be stunned by how many women can't answer that question. Janine, for our final question, what is your next money conversation going to be? And who is it going to be with? So I think that next week, I'm actually going to be talking to the Covey Club. And I'm going to be talking to some folks in Berkeley about these conversations about how to invest our money in ways that align with our values and how to be smarter investors. So this conversation that I started with the book is the conversation that I hope to continue to have with many, many people, because I think it's time to break the taboos around our money. It's time to take the blinders off as women, and it's time to put our money to work for ourselves and for the world. Bravo, Janine. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Money Tales. Your stories are inspirational and your passion and commitment is something we really agree with. Like The more we can talk about this, the better off everybody will be. And congratulations on being so values aligned and spreading the gospel on that. Well, thank you both so much for giving me the opportunity to speak to your audience and to, to put these messages out there in a little broader way. I think we can all benefit from investing these ways. Hey, Cami, what were your money conversation takeaways from this great conversation we just had with Janine Furpo? I really enjoyed hearing about her mom and how her mom was such a money role model. It started with being someone who was very stressed about money all the time and buying powder milk. But then she took ownership over her concerns by learning about real estate, getting into real estate, buying foreclosed properties, learning how to invest. And then she taught Janine and her sister through being an emotive person. And the way she thinks is by talking out loud. Well, that's a money conversation. And I thought, wow, for someone who was obviously very smart and driven and successful, she was teaching her daughter so much just through her thinking out loud. It really sounded like that from what Janine shared with us. And I think one of the beautiful takeaways that all of us can have from this conversation is to think about the money role models in our lives. What is it that they're doing? How are they modeling money for us? What impact did that have on us? And how can we take the best of that and become role models ourselves. Great tip. Sandy, how about you? What was one of your money conversation takeaways? Cammy, there's so many takeaways to choose from, but I'm going to share that when Janine said every dollar is being used by somebody to do something, that really landed on me as she's so right. She's so right. Money flows through our economy. What's one person's spending is another person's income. And of course, because of all that, we do have the power to use our money in ways that reflect our values, that support our purpose in life, that reflects what's most important to us. And I thought that was just a really cool way of expressing those ideas. And it made me stop and go, oh, yeah. And I think there's an implication about this, not only for our spending, but of course, as Janine told us about in the conversation, also for the way we're investing our money, the way we're saving it, 
how we're using our money to help other people. It's really quite powerful. There's true power in that. We can take charge with whatever dollars happen to be in our pocket at any particular time. That's right, Sandy. The other thing I really found interesting was her story about meeting her now husband. And when they got to the point where they were starting to talk about marriage, her husband suggested a prenup because she had more money than he did. It feels very different when I think of a traditional prenup situation. It's more the person with the wealth that is encouraging the other party to set up a prenup. I believe that's the case. Is that your experience, Andy? It is. And I wish, going back to the interview, that we had asked Janine if that's when she knew she had met her true love, because it really seemed like her husband understood her and understood where she was coming from and understood that that legal document would provide some security and some comfort to Janine. So I thought that was super cool. For listeners, we'll remind you, we did talk about premarital agreements in our prior conversation with Lindsay Hardy and the financial insight at the end of that conversation. So we do refer you back to that if you want to learn more about premarital agreements. But I do think it is interesting that her husband, her now husband had asked for the prenup. And in our business, the situation is always sort of tagged as financially diverse couples. And financially diverse couples can be when either spouse has more financial resources than the other. Yeah, it seems like he almost encouraged her, like, we shouldn't do this unless we have a prenup. I don't know if I'm reading too much into it, but I, I loved it. I loved, he knows her so well. And the way they talked about managing their their financial resources, it sounds like it really works well for them. I agree. And that's what's most important, right? Every couple is different. The way that they decide to handle money is different. And I think the key is finding the strategy that works best for them and who they are. So that was wonderful that Janine shared that with us. Anything else you want to share that really stood out to you from a money conversation takeaway? Well, I want to applaud the fact that Janine is really sharing her knowledge about money, about investing, about the way the financial world works. And I think it's so great that she wrote her Activate Your Money book, especially because she's not a personal finance or investment professional. She's a very experienced investor who's learned a lot along the way, and she's wanting to share what she learns. And I also appreciated what Janine shared with us about her editing process. She wrote what she knew into her book, and then she got her huddle together to read the book and help her edit and make sure that she was reflecting things appropriately. And I thought that was brilliant. I liked it too. And I liked that you called it a huddle. She really believes in that. And it's demonstrated in the work that she did all her life in helping people rise up, whether it's out of poverty or empowering women in investing. I want to thank Janine again for this wonderful conversation. It's so nice to learn about all the great things and to learn about all the great experiences she's had in life and all of the money wisdom that she's picked up as a result of them and is sharing with the world. So thank you for that, Janine. And for our listeners, don't forget, you can reach us at podcast at aspirant.com. We'd love to hear your own money stories 
any insights you've received from listening to Money Tales and hearing our stories and conversations along the way. Thanks for listening. And we wish you lots of great money conversations ahead. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.